Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Morgan Housel. Morgan is a uh, partner at Collaborative Fund and an author of the book, The Psychology of Money. Uh, Morgan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Morgan, but by way of introduction, you, you, you're a writer, you're an investor, both you know, public and, and, and private. If you were to look back at the arc of your career as a way of introduction and think about what, what, what threads your different experiences together, your different interests what is that thread? What are the threads you've kept pulling or the questions you've kept asking that help sort of make sense of of your career? Yeah, I would say, you know, my whole career, I graduated college in 2008. My whole career, I've been a financial writer. That's what I've been. I don't consider myself a journalist. I'm not a reporter. Uh, I'm just I'm just an investor who spends all of his time writing. It's always how I've thought of it. And if you go back to when I started, which was 2008, this was, of course, the teeth of the financial crisis. The world was falling to pieces. Everything was a mess. So very early on in my career as a writer, I was trying to, to answer the question, why did people do the things that they did into, in, leading up to the financial crisis? The housing bubble, all the mess of 2008, why did they do it? What were they thinking? Have we learned our lessons? Like, What were the incentives in place that caused it? I was just trying to figure out what was going through people's heads and answering those questions. And I think I realized at some point in that journey as a writer that uh, the answers to why people did the things that they did in 2008 could not be found in an in a finance textbook or an economics textbook. It just didn't, it didn't exist. It didn't fit the mold of how we were taught finance worked. But you could find subtle clues about what happened and why it happened in a history textbook or a political science textbook. Like throughout these other fields that had nothing to do with investing were actually the best explanations for what happened during this investing crisis, this economic crisis. So that just led me down this road of what I really want to figure out in investing. My whole shtick, my my thing that I write on is just what are people thinking? Like I, I'm not, I'm just I'm just not that interested in what's the market gonna do next? What's the next big technology? Like what's what's next? I'm just honestly not interested in that. I, I, I respect people who are, but it's not, it's not for me. What I'm interested in is what is going on in people's heads when they're doing these things. It's a lot of hindsight work as well, which again for an investor. You know, almost, you know, all investing, you know, by nature is forward-looking. What's happening next? I'm, I'm most interested in, you know, the in looking backwards and saying what, what were people thinking back then, and what can we learn about that to think better in the future? So that's kind of always been the thread of what I do throughout different periods. Obviously, 2020 was a big period for just thinking about risk and thinking about opportunity and just like the philosophy of risk. Like, do we even know the risks that are sitting in front of us? Or are we completely blind you know, to getting hit by these things out of the blue was, was a big lesson in that. But that, that's always been the central theme is just what are investors thinking? If we're asking this question in you know, 20 years from now or 30 years from now, and we're, we're looking back at sort of your unique contribution to, 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 to the field more broadly, is it this sort of appreciation for, for, you know, for sort of a historical understanding of what was going on in people's heads? Is, is that sort of where, where you want, want to make your dent? Or how do you sort of think about that? I think, I mean, I, I would say too that you know, in 30 years, virtually none of us will be remembered in this field. That's, that's okay though. But uh, if, if there is a thing that I would want to be remembered for, hypothetically, let's say, it's this idea that investing is not just the study of finance. Like finance is a tiny part of what investing is. What investing is, is a study of how people make decisions with money. 
It's how people think about money. And because it's this behavioral field, it incorporates lessons and rules from all other kinds of different fields, like psychology and sociology, all these things that have nothing to do with investing are really fundamental to understanding how investing works and, and to become a better investor. And so I think that multidisciplinary thing of like, what can we learn from World War II? What can we learn from physics? What can we learn from chemistry that teaches us something fundamental about how investing works? I think that you know that's obviously not something that I came up with myself. Multidisciplinary learning has been around in investing for a long time, but I think that's what I'm most interested in and I try to incorporate into a lot of my writing is I think every good investing article should have a takeaway that is applicable to something not related to investing. You should read it, this investing article and say, oh, this actually reminds me of how to think about risk in another area of my life. This reminds me of something about opportunity in my small business. It has nothing to do with investing markets, but it's more multidisciplinary than just looking at investing through the narrow lens of finance. Give us one or or even a couple of your your favorite examples of this exact phenomenon you're talking about, whether it's 2008 or whether it's the examples you mentioned, World War II or physics or chemistry. What's something like that, one of your favorite examples? I mean, here's one example from the book that that I love. Uh, And this, again, like you would never expect a finance book to be talking about syphilis treatments, but I managed to get it in there in the book. And what it is, is this. Before we had good antibiotics, if you had syphilis, the, the treatment for that, which actually worked, was to inject you with a low strain of malaria. You, I was going to intentionally give you malaria. The reason for that is this, the malaria that you are intentionally injecting in yourself would give you a very high fever, 104, 105. The fever would kill the syphilis that you had. This was the syphilis true. It was, it, 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 it was called malaria therapy. And the guy who came up with it won the Nobel Prize in medicine. This was like the treatment for it. And I use this as an example to just show this. We have known for a long time that fevers are beneficial to infection. If you get a fever, that's a good thing. Your body is saying, hey, I've got a new, a new uh, sword in the toolkit to fight this infection. Fevers are good. You should want to have a fever. But nobody in the real world actually wants a fever. Today in the modern world, if you get a fever, everyone, including doctors, views it as a nuisance. Uh, if you have a fever, it's like, here's some Tylenol, get rid of it. Like we don't want it. Even if it's good, we know fevers are helpful to fighting for infection. Everyone tries to get rid of them. Why? I think the answer is really clear about why that is because fevers hurt. They suck. No one wants to have a fever. They're miserable. No one wants to shiver in bed. So we get rid of it. And so even if it is rational to want a fever, to get rid of your illness, it is not reasonable to want a fever. Everyone wants to get rid of it. And I think that framework of something can be rational, you should want to rationally want something, but if it's not reasonable, then you're not going to do it, is a really important framework for investing as well. Like most investors should not aim to be coldly rational because it's just not realistic, particularly if we're talking individual investors. Don't aim to be rational. The best you can do is to aim to be reasonable. That's the best we can do. And reasonable can be great. So there's a lot of things that investors do that I do as well that don't make sense on paper, that you can't justify in a spreadsheet. They might look irrational, but it's like, hey, if it works for you, if it makes you comfortable, if it helps you sleep at night, and that's the best thing you can do. And I think a lot of investors, particularly individual investors, who if you give them that freedom to say, hey, there's this thing that you do. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's not rational, but hey, does it help you to have half your net worth in cash? I'm, I'm, I'm making that up. Like if that helps you sleep at night, it's not rational. But if that helps you sleep at night, like, cool, that works for you. I think just aiming to be reasonable instead of rational uh, helps. And we see that in medicine with fevers. And there's a lot of other things in investing where we can do that as well. Yeah. Reminds me of the saying, uh, something you know, that works in practice, but not in theory or exactly adjacent to that. Um, and yeah, uh, reasonable, not always rational. Is, is there a similar or adjacent framework around uh, willpower? Or would have uh, any thoughts on willpower? 
I think what's I, I, I don't, this is this is sort of getting into willpower, but there is a thing with reasonable and, and rational here where so much of long-term investing success is just staying in the game, just like keeping in, letting compounding work. Compounding only works if you can give an investment years or decades to work. Like you just got to stay in the game. You got to stay in the fight. And if if investing in a company that you are like in love with, you are like emotionally attached to this investing, to this investment. If that's going to give you endurance, then it's worth it. And this again is not a rational thing because the rational investors will tell you, don't fall in love with your investments. Let's let's keep this to public equities. Don't fall in love with your investments. It's a stock. Don't like if it's if it's not working. If the company's not working, sell, get rid of it. That's like the rational advice. But I think for people who absolutely love their investments, their invest their Tesla stock is their baby. I think that's actually a beneficial thing if it's going to keep you in the game. If that love gives you endurance and is going to keep you in there, then it's a great thing to do. Uh, so I think a, a subpar investing strategy that you love and therefore you are willing to stick with it is going to compound to a greater degree than a perfect investing strategy that you're more likely to abandon just because you're you're being rational about it. So that's kind of like, you know, that, that's sort of related to willpower in, in, in the sense of like, what's, what's going to give you the endurance to keep going? Yeah. A lot of it are these irrational things that actually work out for you in the long run. Yeah. I want to get into some of, some, some of the topics of, of the book. One chapter you have is around um, compounding and, and how there are certain misconceptions people have about it or, or, or ways in which people don't f- fully appreciate appreciate how, how compounding works. Why don't you unpack that? I, I think even if you're a finance person, if you're a math person, you you understand compounding, you understand exponential growth. Like you, the math makes sense. It's never intuitive. Even if you understand the math, you still don't get how powerful compounding, like no one understands how powerful it can be. It's just not an intuitive thing to think about. The example that I use in the book that seems to resonate with people is that 99% of Warren Buffett's net worth came after his 50th birthday and 97% came after his 65th birthday because that's how compounding works. Like when you, he's 90 years old, the big gains, come at the end of the cycle and like in the later years. And the point of this is, look, if Buffett had retired at age 65, like a normal person, you would have never heard of him. He never would have become a household name. He would have been another guy in Laguna Beach worth the hunt with 200 million bucks, which, you know, they're a dime a dozen in Southern California where he had his summer house. You would have never heard of him. The reason that he became worth $90 billion is because he kept investing full-time through today at age 90. That's it. And this is important because there's so many Buffett fans or name your other successful investor fans who I think miss why that person is so successful. So for Buffett, they go into grand detail in books and whatnot about how does Buffett think about market cycles and business models and moats and management teams, which is all important. But if you're trying to answer the question, how did Warren Buffett become worth $90 billion? There's only one answer. And that's he's been investing for 80 years. That's the, that's the answer. Like a hundred percent full stop. That's why he did it. So like, is Buffett a good investor? Yes, of course he is. But he's been a good, like his real secret is that he's been a good investor for eight decades. And that's, that's the real key behind it. And of course there are other younger investors who have done extremely well too, but it's easy to overlook uh, the key causes of why something has been so successful. And often the, the answer to that is something so simple just in terms of like time and endurance and compounding. And since compounding is not intuitive, it's easy to overlook that and just ignore it and want to focus on something more technical that seems like it should make the difference, even if the answer is just time. 
It's really interesting. I mean, it, it brings another uh, sort of angle to the question that a lot of you know college graduates face, or sort of you know uh, college graduates with a lot of options face, which is you know do you start a company or do you join a company? And sometimes people put off starting because they want to you know, get quote unquote experience or get get your brand or be in a network. But people don't think that you know it rarely is in their calculus is like if it works. They could be, you know, have money at an early age and then thus be able to to compound start start the compounding sooner. Yeah. I mean, there's things with career too. Like not all compounding is is a financial thing. There's things if you stick in one industry for 20 years, your network compounds. You, the the little nuance of just like gut feelings, that compounds just because because you've been doing something for 20 years in the same industry for 20 years. Now, that's not to say that people shouldn't move on or try something else, but there's a lot of compounding, particularly in relationships, networks, and whatnot, that just, again, it's not intuitive how powerful that can be. Like if you are in one industry for 20 years, you're going to be so well-connected without even trying that the, the power of that for you to, to, to move your career from there is going to be so much greater than you would imagine. Yeah. Talk about uh, getting wealthy versus, versus staying wealthy and sort of the different frameworks or approaches that, that uh, are inherent therein. You know, I think people tend to view wealthy or, or, or rich as just like a singular topic. Like rich is making a lot of money and having a lot of money. That's rich. I've often viewed it as like two very distinct and almost polar opposite skills there. There's making money and keeping money, totally different things that require different skills. So getting rich requires optimism and swinging for the fences and like you know, being an optimist about technology and knowing where technology is going and having confidence that humans can solve problems for years to come. That's getting rich. Staying rich is almost like the opposite. It's paranoia and conservatism and not wanting to go into a lot of debt because you don't know what's going to happen this year. And, uh, you know, realizing that all of history is like this continuous chain of recessions and bear markets and flush outs and bankruptcies that you need to survive. So that your ability to survive that pessimism in the short run is what's going to keep you around enough is keep you in the game to enjoy the long run. And I think if you look at a lot of people uh, who are very successful, the kind of people that we admire become role models. They do have both of those skills. Like you have to have both of those skills at the same time to do well over a long period of time. Uh, I, I've used the example before of, of Bill Gates as someone who obviously, you know, if you look at the arc of his career, particularly going back to the 70s and 80s, he's he's the biggest tech op that has probably ever lived. You know, if you are starting a software company in 1974, whenever Microsoft was founded, like you are an optimist beyond belief. But if you often look into how Bill Gates managed Microsoft when he was CEO, he was an absolute pessimist. He had this rule that the company always had to have enough cash in the bank so that they could pay everyone's salary for one year with zero revenue because he was just he was constantly worried about the world falling apart. The deals that he struck in order to you know leap over IBM was paranoia and, and pessimism about competition, like so paranoid about the competition that was out there that led him to sing. So he was on one hand, crazy optimist and crazy pessimist at the same time. And you need, and it's like the intersection of those two conflicting skills that brought him to where he is. And I, I think there are a lot of people who only have one of those skills, people who are just optimistic and at the top of the cycle, regardless of what industry it is at the top of the cycle, like they're gone. If you're just an optimist and you have no room for error, like poof, you get flushed out and you're gone. Or people who are only pessimists and we all know them as well. They've been you know, hiding in their bunkers since the 1970s, waiting for the world to fall apart. We all know them as well. So you have to have both skills at the same time. Yeah. I've heard, I don't know if it was Mark and Jason or someone else who was sort of making the you know friendly critique of, of Warren Buffett that he's, you know, sort of the opposite of what a venture capitalist is in that Warren Buffett makes bets 
um, that the world isn't going to change. That that or maybe it was Peter Thiel who said that. Um, that you know, no, railroads. No, was, are, no, no, this was no, this was, oh, this, was, that, was that was Mark Andreessen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, railroads and and Coke uh, and uh, and other you know other big you know big sort of incumbents will continue to become more, more powerful, and that there won't be you know game changing disrupting startups. Uh, are you sympathetic to that critique, uh, or, or how would you how do you make sense of it? I, I wrote about this once, and I of course you know who, who am I to say that Mark is wrong? That's not the the, the point that I'm making, but I, I do think there's more nuance to it. I've, I love this quote from Jeff Bezos years ago, where he said. I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote. This is not verbatim, but he says, you know, people always ask me what's going to change in technology. And he said, I, I, a, a better question is what's not going to change. And a lot of what made Amazon successful is that they bet on something that would never, ever change, which is that consumers will always want low prices and fast shipping. And Bezos said, again, I'm paraphrasing, he's like, you can never imagine a world where consumers say like, oh, Jeff, I like Amazon. I just wish shipping was a little bit slower. That world will never, ever exist. So you can very confidently put, invest all your money and resources into fast shipping, knowing that it will be valuable 20 years from now, which you can't do for a lot of technology. So Bezos' point is like, you know, there there are things that change that you need to bet on and get right. But there's also this huge bucket of things that never change that you can make big investments into. And I think Buffett and Andreessen, like are, they, they're, on, they're obviously on different ends of that spectrum. But Mark Andreessen is also betting on things that never change. There's, there's a lot of companies that uh, Andreessen Horowitz has invested in that, again, like to that, that, Amazon, that Amazon idea of like customers are always on fast shipping, low prices. They're, 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 like that's always a function of every successful business, even if you're also betting on a part of the economy and industry that will change as well. Yeah. Beyond what we talked about so, so far, what are some of the most important things you, you've learned uh, about good and bad relationships to, to money? I, think I, I, I go into a lot of this in the book as well. I think people generally have an inflated sense of what money is going to do for them, particularly if we're talking about people in the upper, you know, let's say the, the, the upper quintile, the upper decile of income and net worth. Uh, it's, I think it's so easy to just to think as you are on your path to making money and dreaming about having money in, in the future, oh, I have a bonus coming up. Uh, my company's going to go public. Here's what's going to do for me. It's easy to mass, not a little bit, but massively, massively overestimate the uh, benefit, the joy that that's going to bring you. And it's not that money doesn't bring happiness. Like that's not, this is not like a, a you know, I'm not telling people to live like a monk. It's not that in the slightest, but to me, what money does do for people what having a lot of money does do for people that does bring them joy and happiness to most people is controlling your time. Like just the ability to wake up in the morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. I can work for whoever I want to. I can quit whenever I want to. I can live wherever I want to. If it's a Wednesday afternoon and I'm not feeling it, I'm going to go take a nap. I own my time. My calendar belongs to me. And that's what I used to do. I think that will bring more lasting happiness than a, a Lamborghini will do for most people. And I, I, I love Lamborghinis, but I think that's, I, th- I think that's the most common misconception with money. It's not that money doesn't bring you happiness. It's, it's, it'll bring you a different kind of happiness than you imagined. And a lot of that is because of course, the, like the classic hedonic treadmill of if you're using your money to buy stuff, a big house, a nice car, whatever it is, you're just pushing yourself into a different social class in which you're going to start looking ahead. If you're, if you make a million dollars, you're going to start looking ahead to people who make five. If you make five, you look to people who make 10, like you're never going to win that game. You're always just going to be on this treadmill. Whereas owning your time is something that every day you wake up, 
that you own your schedule, you will wake up and be like, yes, like another, like, this is awesome. I don't have to like, whatever I want to do today, I can do. And look, most of the time, what I and other people want to do is wake up every day and work hard. I want to go, I want to go to work and do the best work that I can. So controlling your time, this is not retire. This is not the fire movement. I'm not, that's not it. It's just that you can work on things that you want to for people who you want to work for, which is a totally different game than 99.9% of humanity lives in. Yeah. And, and when you studied and you read about this as well, um, you know, very successful people, whether it's entrepreneurs or, or investors and you study their, their relationship to, to, to money. When you think about how motivated are they by, by, by money versus, versus, versus other things? You know, some, there's this general trope that people need to have a chip on their shoulder, that they look for you know, in, in, uh, startups that have the founder where they have a chip on their shoulder. How, how do you think about that sort of uh, stereotype as well? There's several different segments of this. Is one is for people who are in the the lower income groups. If you are who is has food insecurity or housing insecurity, then your motivation to earn more money is extreme. And then there's and then there's there's another level where uh, let's call this the middle class and upper middle class. So I think the motivation to make more is honestly not that much because people in that group don't feel like they have. I'm being very I'm generalizing to. To a huge degree here and probably an unfair way, uh, degree, but a lot of people in that group don't feel like they have the opportunities to go out and make a lot. If you're someone who makes 45 grand a year working as an accountant, you probably don't feel like you have the opportunity to go make $5 million somewhere. It's just not really in your wheelhouse. So, so then the motivation isn't there to that degree. And then when you get to the upper classes, to the, 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 the upper income groups, that tends to be the people who do have or, or at least think they have the opportunity to go out and make a ton of money. So even though those are the people that have the most money, I think their motivation to make more is almost the greatest out of any segment in society. It's like this irony, like, you know, what, what percentage of billionaires out there are waking up every morning, working as hard as they can to double their money, whatever the percentage is, it's higher than the percentage of people who make 40 grand a year, which is ironic, right? Like the people who have tons want more to a greater degree than the people who don't have that much. So I think that's like an interesting thing. And I wrote about in the book, this chapter called enough, which is this, this idea of at some point, it's healthy to have an idea of having enough money. The number is going to be different for everyone, but at some, if, if you never, if you are always on this treadmill of just more and more and more, and like, what's the, like, what's the ideal amount of like, what's, what's your ideal net worth? If the, if the answer to that question is always double what I have right now, whatever I have right now, like that to me, like maybe that works for someone. If you're extreme type A, maybe that works for you. But for me, that's always been like, I don't know if that's the life that I, that I want to live. I, I actually have, I won't share the number, but I have a net worth number that I'm confident. My net worth will never go above X because if it did, I would, I'd shut everything down and go to the beach and read books and hang out with my kids. I'm not saying other people should do that, but for my personality, I, I, I think that the concept of having enough is really important for me. Yeah. You, you cover this early on in the book, but I'm, I'm curious to if you give a preview here. The, the relationship between luck and, and, and risk; these are terms that are used, you know, very uh, often to describe very different things. How, how, how do you how do you make sense of it? I think you know, luck is just a brief definition of luck. Luck is things happening in the world outside of your control that have a greater imp, uh, a greater impact on outcomes than anything you could do intentionally. That's what luck is. And risk. What's the definition of risk? Risk is actually the exact same thing. Risk is things happening in the world outside of your control that have a greater impact on outcomes than anything you did intentionally. So luck and risk are the exact same thing, just in the opposite directions. Luck is this way, risk is that way, but they're the exact same thing. 
And this is important because particularly in the investing industry, we spend so much time thinking about talking about measuring risk, particularly like in public markets, you have risk managers, risk adjusted returns. All we talk about, like, what's the risk of this? What's the risk of that? Risk is the foundation of investing, but we almost never talk about luck. It's the exact same thing. It's just as powerful as risk. And we never talk about it. And that I think is a really dangerous thing. And the reason that we don't, that I think is because if I said, uh, Eric, your success was just luck. I look like a, a jealous jerk. No one wants to say that. Even if it's true, I'm not, I'm not saying it's true for you, but if I were to say that to anyone, it just makes you look jealous, bitter. So no one wants to bring it up. And if I said, if I looked in the mirror and said, any success that I've had is due to luck, I don't want to believe that either. I want to believe that I've worked hard. So it's very easy to sweep luck under the rug for social reasons. It's like, it's just like, yeah, it exists, but like, I don't want to talk about it. I, I, I don't want to say someone else was lucky. I don't want to say I was lucky. I was sweeping under the rug. So I think we systematically overlook and ignore the role of luck in business and investing. And what's important here is that if I say someone was lucky, I talk about in the book about how Bill, how Bill Gates was lucky. And I reiterate this from the, from the, from the start. I'm not saying he was only lucky. I'm saying that luck had a big impact on it, but is Bill Gates a hardworking genius visionary? Oh my God. Yes. Like times the thousand. Yes. But I write in the book, he went to the only high school in the United States that had a computer. And he was, he's very open about if he did not go to this high school, there would have been no Microsoft. So he's very open about the, like the role of that dumb luck that brought him there. And it's not to say, again, like he, he you know, there are lots of kids going to that school and he's the only one who created a, two, a trillion dollar company out of it. So of course he did things that other people didn't. But if we ignore the role of luck played, then people who are idolizing him and trying to replicate his success will always overlook what actually made him successful. So it's important that as we are looking for role models in business and investing, that I think it's always important to take the 30,000 foot takeaways from their success. And rather than looking at Bill Gates and saying like, what did he do to start a software business that I can do? Like you, you can't get that into the weeds. I think the only takeaway that you might be able to replicate is the really high 30,000 uh, foot view things that, that are really broad and kind of generic. That's what you can take away because like, there's no way that you or I could replicate Bill Gates's luck of going to the only high school in America that had a computer. Like we just can't do that. That's out of the equation. So once you realize that, then I think you just start looking for really broad, high level takeaways from companies and individuals to learn from. And I, 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 I think it's fascinating. I think another way, a question it begs for me is, you know, as you mentioned, there were a lot of other people who went to that school who obviously didn't invent Microsoft, which the question begs for me is how many other Microsoft opportunities are there for us opportunities that we just never see or that we never even realize? Um, and I, I, I write in the book too, uh, and this is, all, this is all public information and I didn't come up with this, but when Bill Gates was at Lakeside School where he went to high school, his best friend by his own account was a guy named Ken Evans. And by Bill Gates' account, Ken Evans was smarter than Bill, had a better business mind than Bill, had more computer ability than Bill. He was like a super Bill. And their idea was that Bill and Kent, after they went to college, were going to start a company together. So Kent Evans could have been what Microsoft really was. And Bill Gates could have been you know, second fiddle to tech guru, Ken Evans, but Kevin Evans died in a mountaineering accident when he was 18. And so here again is like Bill Gates had this crazy stroke of luck. And Ken Evans had this crazy stroke of luck to go to the school that had a computer, but Ken Evans faced the other side of that equation, which is just extreme risk. Like he got extremely unlucky and had this freak accident that took him out of the game at age 18 where, where, where Bill Gates got to keep going. So 
the, like that's to your point, like how many of those two, how many Ken Evans are there that could have been Bill Gates? He could have been the next Steve Jobs, next Elon Musk. And wasn't because he had this freak accident. I often think too, and a lot of people think this, like how many Elon Musk are in sub-Saharan Africa right now that just don't have, I mean, this is an interesting example because Elon Musk is from South Africa at least, but there's, there's so much out there that doesn't come to fruition because of various degrees of luck and risk. Yeah. I'm a big uh, basketball guy. Uh, and from, you know, there stories of Len Bias or Greg Oden or all these amazing, you know, people who are supposed to be the next LeBron, the next Jordan who just, you know, got, got really unlucky early. Um, no, yeah. Fascinating to think about. So, so, so you've been writing about these topics for a long time, but when you went out to write the book, what surprised you uh, the most uh, put, putting it together? What, what sort of changed your mind uh, over time as you were, as you were putting this together? So I've, I've written blogs for decades, uh, for, for, for more than a decade, I should say. And blogs are 800 to 1,000 words. If you're not familiar with writing, that's kind of like a normal blog length. Um, so when I sat down to write a book, it was like, okay, this is, not a, this is not a blog. This is a book. And a book chapter is generally four to 5,000 words. Well, four to 5,000 words is a length that I don't have a lot of experience with because I write blog posts. That's my, that's my format that I'm most comfortable with. So when I sat down to write the book, the idea was it was going to be 10 chapters of about four to 5,000 words each. And as I started going through it, I just realized that I was rambling a lot and I was just trying to fill the page with words. Okay. Like here's this point that I'm trying to make. And now I need to fill 5,000 words to make this point. And therefore I'm just going to keep adding in fluff and BS. And here's another example of this. And it just, I just didn't like where it was going. So I finally came to turn. I just owned the style of writing that I have. And I said, no, Rather than 10 chapters of 4,000 words, I'm going to make this 20 chapters and they're going to be, some of the chapters are going to be literally 700 words and that's fine. Like, I think a big part of writing a book is respecting the reader. If you sell a book to someone, I'm asking you, Eric, please devote 15 to 20 hours to my work. Like I'm, 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 I'm asking a lot of you. I'm asking to you for, to devote your valuable time to reading my work. If I'm going to do that, I need to respect your time with as little rambling as I can. And the way to do that for me was just writing a bunch of short chapters. Uh, there's one chapter in the book that is one page long. And when I turned it in, the publisher was like, oh, this is, this is a mistake. Like you're, 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 you're missing a file here. So there's can't be. And I said, no, that's, that's all I have to say on this topic. I don't have anything. So I, I don't have anything else to add. So I'm done. I'm going to move on from there. And that's part of the book that I'm proudest of. Like I changed that, you know, a third of the way through writing it. And I'm actually proudest of that is that you can, I'm not offended if people call this a collection of blog posts. That's effectively what it is. But I kind of like that. I like that what is in there is I I wanted to make my point. I wanted to make a good point and I wanted to use a good story to make that point. And then I just want to stop and get out of your way and move on to the next chapter. Yeah, that reads through. I, I love that. Going back to risk for a second, give it a, a, an example for, from the book or otherwise of someone who manages risk exceptionally well in a way that might not be might not be obvious or any generalizable principles on on you know managing risk really well. Yeah, what what, what comes to mind? I know this is such a cliche example, and I use this stuff too much in the book, but I think Buffett has done a great job. One of the reasons that we do it's easy to talk about Buffett is because he has eighty years of track record to pull from. So every cycle, every conceivable thing he's been through. But there are so many times in Buffett's life where I think he could have demonstrably earned much higher returns for taking more risk, and and he chose not to. I mean, the the amount of cash that he's had on the balance sheet or back to his partnership days has always been really high. Because I think first and foremost, rather than than earning a return, what's always on his mind first and foremost is like, how do I not get killed here? How do I not get crushed? There's a story, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, that is, it's 
it's public information, but not a lot of people know this, is that people are familiar with the duo Buffett and Munger. They've been investors forever. But uh, back in the 70s, in the 60s, it was actually a trio. There was a third investor in that group named, named, named Rick Gurren. And Rick Gurren was, it was Buffett, Munger, and Rick Gurren. They were part of, they were the investors who were going out and interviewing the CEO of Seize Candy to, before they bought the company. So a few years ago, a hedge fund manager named Monish Pabrai asked Buffett, he said, hey, what happened to Rick Gurren? Like I'd read about him from the days in the 70s, but he just seemed to disappear. And Buffett told the story, which was that he said, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, he, Buffett and Munger always knew that they were going to get rich. So they were not in a hurry. There was like, we knew it was going to happen. We knew that becoming billionaires was inevitable. We were not in a hurry, but he said, Rick Gurren was in a hurry. So he used a ton of margin debt, got all levered up in the 1970s bear, got washed out. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm citing this secondhand, but apparently after he got his margin called, he sold Hathaway stock back to Warren Buffett. That was how he like, he made his mark. And so, and so Buffett made this point that Rick Gurren is just as smart as, as Warren and Charlie. He was in a hurry where they're not. So I think that level of risk management where you are intentionally, you know, sabotaging your, like you, like you could have earned better returns, but you chose not to because all you're about is surviving and surviving is important because that's where compacts. Like compounding only works if you can survive for decades. So I, I think that level of risk management, like the kind of risk management where you look like an idiot in the short run because you know how powerful the long run is, is, is the stuff that I always respect. I think that's where a lot of, especially earlier on, a lot of uh, Bitcoin uh, hodlers, uh, you know, felt a lot of pride for just having a longer, yeah. longer time preference. Yeah, I mean, more power to them. If you can survive how many 80% bear markets, for, <laughs> if you can put up with that, like you got an iron stomach. And if you can put up with that in an asset that compounds over 20, 30, 50 years, you're going to do just fine. Yeah, and, or, and not sell when, it, when things are, you know, at 40, uh, which they are right now. You know, yeah, it's a it's a special special thing. T- talk about uh, Buffett and Munger. The, the when you look at the partnership, w- what can we learn um, for for what makes investment partnerships work so well, or just uh, you know co founder you know p- peer relationships? What, what do you think we, we can learn from there? The Buffett Munger relationship is interesting because I think the most important part of it is that for decades now they live in different cities and they don't talk that much. I think if you are in someone's hair, if you are married to your business partner, it can work, but can it work for 60 years? Like probably not. My, my, my interpretation, I don't know either of them, but my interpretation is that Buffett and Munker talk on the phone once or twice a month and they see each other a couple of times a year, but they're, but they're business partners, but that's like, it works perfect for them. They have a lot of freedom. They have a lot of autonomy. And, uh, you know, I, I think what's interesting about Munger too, is that you know, d- does Buffett need Munger? I think the answer is, is is yes, but Munger plays a very special role in that his role is to basically tell Buffett no. My my impression too is that Buffett brings ideas to the table and Munger shoots them down. And that's the dynamic between them. And Berkshire makes an investment when Buffett brings it to the table and Munger says, okay, yeah, you can do that. Uh, so that's a really interesting dynamic too. And like the fact that they have not hit a power rift between that of Munger saying, no, I want I want to do more of my deals. And Buffett's saying, you always say no to my deals. Like the fact that it works for them is great. And I think a lot of the reason it works for them is because they don't sit in an office next to each other. They live very independent lives, even if they've been really important to each other's success over time. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating when you get to that, you know, level, someone like Buffett, someone like a monger, you were talking about Bill Gates earlier, there becomes a big question around like, how, how do they spend their time? And what can we learn for, from, from how they do spend their time in terms of like, you know, these people are focused, assuming that they're obsessed with how to get the most leverage on their, on their time. Um, 
what, what can we learn? Uh, what, what, what comes to mind for you there? What's, I think it's probably the most overlooked aspect of, of Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway is that what has made him successful is permanent capital. It's the fact that he's not running a hedge fund where people can redeem their shares if there's a bad quarter and like just you know run the fund dry. It's not like that at all. When it was a partnership, there was a big lockup and now it's a public company. You can sell your Berkshire shares, but it doesn't do anything to the Berkshire treasury. You're not taking cash out of the company, out of the investment fund. It's not like that at all. So the fact that Berkshire has permanent capital is what has allowed him to do the things that he's done. I, I always think you know there are so many good fund managers out there who make investing decisions that they don't necessarily agree with, but they have to, because if they didn't, like they're, they're pandering to their investors, short-term needs and wants and expectations in a way that Buffett has never had to do. And so I think since, since Berkshire can take long-term bets, they don't have to worry about quarterly redemptions. Buffett has also scheduled his day in a way that makes it so he's not trying to impress anyone. So he spends a huge majority of his day just sitting around reading and learning Whereas I think a lot of hedge fund managers and asset managers spend their day trying to figure out what's the market going to do in the next month, not because I necessarily care, but because I need to report quarterly results to my investors. And if they're bad, they're going to redeem their shares. That's what they're thinking. Like I'm, I'm generalizing here, but that's a lot of what happens. And the permanent, the, the permanent capital of Berkshire Hathaway uh, has been so important to how they structure their day of just, you know, what's the, what's the highest ROI, the highest leverage activity that I can do. And I think for a a lot of the time, it's just sitting around on your ass reading, not doing a lot. And that's worked for them to such a beautiful degree. And I think that's the reason why no one has replicated what they've done yet is because it's gaining permanent capital, uh, the amount of trust that that takes, and just just the, the asset structure that that takes of running a public company like a hedge fund is so rare and so hard to replicate that it's uh, that, that no one's been able to do it yet. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. If you, if you are sort of the full time, like learning, you know, you're focused on learning where you can have a unique insight it, it, to get into the weeds for a second sort of begs the question of like, what's, what's, what is the best ROI on time? Is it, is it reading the book? Is it talking to the author? Assuming, you know, you're at that level, you can do whatever you want. Talking to the author who wrote the book, you know, being in a regular chat with experts, you know, for you, I, I, I gather it's, you've identified hey, writing a, a piece, you know, every week, every couple of weeks is, is really how you think about maybe your, your learning loop. What have you What have you gleaned based on how some of these others or how, how you think about just most effective ways to, 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 to learn and get smarter? There's this interview with uh, Gates and Buffett uh, 10 years ago or so. And Bill Gates is known for these think weeks where every year he takes a week off. He goes into like a mountain cabin with a, a box full of books and he just thinks about technology and business. So Gates was telling that story that every week he has a think week and Buffett interjects and he says, I'm the opposite. He said 51 weeks a year, I'm just reading books and thinking. And once a year, when a big deal comes up, I have to go do some work. <laughs> like it's the, like the polar opposite of what they did. And I, 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 I thought that was great. I'm, I'm much more obviously towards the Buffett side of structuring my day. I mean, cause what I do is write. And so all ideas for a writer just comes from reading. So my work where I'm gaining the the ideas from, from my next article is just a function of sitting down and reading. So I've tried to structure my day that way. It's hard for people to do that because sitting on the couch, reading a book doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like you're being productive. Like to, to feel productive, most people feel like they need to be sitting at a keyboard, typing, making a deliverable to turn into their boss. That's what productive work feels like. And sitting on the couch in your sweatpants reading doesn't. 
But yeah. once you get past that as a writer, that like, no, this is, I'm working. It's hard to explain to my wife. Like I'm working, like leave, leave me alone. It doesn't look like it, but I'm working right now. It's hard to explain to people. But I think if you can really embrace it, that that's what work is. I think Buffett's done that in his ability to be a hedge fund manager, so to speak, by just sitting on the couch, reading annual reports without doing, you know, making one decision a year. If you yeah. can, if you can embrace it, that's actually what works then great. But it's so hard for people to wrap their heads around it. Well, and, and I agree, but let, let's say people get to that stage, that stage of enlightenment. Um, and then the question is, okay, what, what to read? Uh, you know, I could follow my curiosity, but I'm curious about so many different things. H- how have you sort of gleaned onto like, how, how to even structure that, that, that learning or is it, yeah, what comes to mind for you? I, I stole this idea from Patrick O'Shaughnessy for reading of have a very wide filter, but then like funnel or uh, sorry, a very wide funnel but then like filter it down very quickly. So what that means for me is I'm willing to start reading anything that catches my attention, any like fiction, nonfiction, any field, anything. If it looks remotely interesting, yeah, I, I'll start reading it. But if it doesn't catch me really quickly, I have no shame into saying, nope, I'm done. I read one page of this book. It didn't do it for me. I'm moving out. I'm not going to waste my time. Like I'm, I'm out of there. Like I'm not going to burden myself with bad books and take my, my time. So I think if you have that wide, funnel. Like you're going to capture a lot of from, from various industries. You're not just reading about tech. You're not just reading about investing. Anything that looks interesting, bring it in. Uh, but, cut, but cut your losses as quick as you can. That to me has been the reading technique strategy that's worked the best because I found since the, the funnel is wide, I found books that I never would imagine that I would have liked from fields that I never would have thought were even remotely interesting. But I, I'm willing to give them a shot. And if they caught me quick, I'm going to dig deep into them and learn something that I never would have imagined doing that. But since I cut my losses quick, I, I, I have a lot of time to move on to something that so many people feel an obligation to finish a book that they start. And I think that's just a terrible strategy in reading. If it's not doing it for you, just get out of there and move on. There's a lot of good books out there. Move on to what works for you. No, you talk about towards, towards the end of the book, talk about, and we talk, touched on it briefly earlier, but talk about why pessimism is so seductive and how to sort of uh, not, not fall prey to it. It's this idea that pessimism sounds smarter than optimism, which like, to put it bluntly, if I were to say I have a stock that I know is going to go up tenfold in the next month, most people are going to say like, bullshit, you're, you're, you're trying to sell, you're trying to sell me a newsletter. Like, I know that's not true. But if I were to say, Hey, I got information that there's going to be a terrorist attack next week. You're like, Tell me about it. I, I want to hear that. Like pessimism always kept captures people's attention in a way that optimism doesn't. Because like a lot of optimism sounds like a sales pitch, and pessimism sounds like someone trying to help you. A lot of that is just evolution. Like we're made to react to a greater degree to threats than opportunities because that's how you survive. Like you like threats are more important than opportunities to survival. So that's just how it's it's come across. And it, it's important as an investor too. I, I kind of touched on this earlier. Like you can be an optimist in the long run. And know that over the next 10, 20 years, there's going to be a lot of progress in technology and the economy. People are going to solve problems. We're going to become more more productive. But in the short run, it's going to be a mess. It's always a mess. It's a constant chain of recessions and bear markets and uh, and insurrections and things happening in public. It's always, all of history is a disaster, constant disaster. But there's so much progress over time. Like coming to terms with both of those things, I think is really important to the optimism, pessimism you know, you know, balance between the two that you can be an optimist and a pessimist at, at the same time, just with a little bit of nuance between the two. And it's really important to do that. But if you don't understand that nuance between the two, it is more common to become 
a long-term pessimist because it's so much easier to wrap your head around and it sounds more important to become a pessimist. I think more people are permanent long-term pessimists than permanent long-term optimists. But I think you just have to know what, like why pessimism is more appealing just because it's more seductive to the, the, the threat part of your brain. But uh, you know how powerful optimism can be because we because we underestimate how powerful compounding can be. Yeah, you you, you close the book with the postscript uh, titled you know, "A Brief History of Why the U.S. Consumer Thinks the Way They Do." Uh, unpack what you what you were trying to do there. Let me give you the really really truncated version. I mean, the, the chapter in the book is, is is short, but it's it's going to be much longer than I'm about to explain to you. I'm just trying to like. Not not give a complete history of the U.S. consumer since World War II, but I just want to say, like, what is the narrative arc that connects all the dots between the two that got us to where we are today? And I think you can make a narrative that sounds something like this. Again, this is really brief, uh, but at the end of World War II, there was a, a, a large thought that after wartime spending ended, we were going to get pushed right back to the Great Depression, that the only thing keeping the economy up out of the Great Depression was the fact that we were building so many tanks and airplanes and wartime spending. And this freaked out policymakers. It freaked out Harry Truman. They really wanted to make sure that as wartime spending ended, they did not go back to the Great Depression. So they set up a lot of mechanisms, stimulus policies, basically, to make these returning GIs who are coming home from Europe and Japan to turn them into consumers. A lot of this was the GI Bill, but there's a lot of other stuff about you know, about the 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 birth of credit cards and a lot of just things that turned people into consumers, like the American consumer. Like we want everyone to go out to the store and spend as much money as they can. That was kind of the birth of the 1950s boom, the economic boom that that started. And what was really important during this period, a lot of this was because of the wartime policies. A lot of that economic boom of the 50s and 60s was fairly equal in terms of income groups, and actually the lower income groups had higher percentage income growth than the upper income groups. Like people made like richer people made more money, but the lower income people were growing faster. And then so income inequality during those years was much lower than it is today, which created this sense of togetherness that people like rich people and poor people watch the same TV. They listen to the, they watch the same news program. They they're, they're all buying their cars from general motors. Maybe the rich people have Cadillacs, the poor people have Chevys, but they're like, they're not that much different. There's a degree of togetherness and oneness in the 50s and 60s that was really important. And I'm not making any kind of moral judgment on this or whether that was good or bad. It just happened and it had a big impact on society because of this. As we got to the 1980s, uh, that's when income inequality really started growing apart. The rich became very, very rich. Rich, the poor became kind of flatlined, if not going down. But since we had this idea of togetherness, that we, we should all live kind of similar lives, and we got that idea from the 50s and 60s, as the rich started getting really rich and spending a lot of money, buying bigger houses, sending their kids to private schools, buying nice cars, et cetera, the rest of society, like the other 90% of society that was not rich at the time, had their aspirations inflated by the rich people. And the only way that they can make up that difference between the aspirations that were given to them by richer people and their financial situation of not making that much money was through debt. The only way that you could close the gap between your rich neighbor who was sending his his kids to private school and you who was struggling, the only way you could close that gap was with debt. Like, okay, like Bob's sending his kids to Harvard. I want to do that too, but I have to go into a crazy amount of debt to do that. Oh, Jim bought a 5,000 square foot house. I want to do that too, but I can only do that by taking out a huge mortgage. That began the debt boom of the 80s through the, the mid-2000s that ended with the 2008 financial crisis. And I think a lot of that ramifications kind of kept growing after the financial crisis into this idea that just for a big segment of the economy, 
uh, the world's just not really working for them. And I think that led to Brexit in the UK. It led to the rise of Donald Trump in the United States. Just a lot of people in the economy just looking around saying, this isn't working. Like, stop the train. I want off. This isn't doing it for me. And I think you can actually tie a narrative all the way back to the beginning of World War II of how that actually happened. Like all these things just connected to each other that led to these, not just economic developments, but social developments and things in politics that uh, it it makes you have a greater appreciation for them. I think if you understand the roots of them, that the roots of the financial crisis, the roots of Brexit and Donald Trump started in 1945 with our ability to create booming consumers and growth among among social classes at the same degree that all kind of fell apart in the 1980s. And, and just to, to close the loop on and, it was, and bring back to where we started, the uh, the financial crisis, talk about in, in the ensuing 12 years, what we haven't learned and and and, and what we have. It's it's a great. I, I think I, th- I don't think anyone can answer that question. Like we'll be able to answer that question in thirty years from now. But there's always there's always a case that that people are going to think they're they're always going to be fighting the last war. So after the financial crisis, we made sure that a bank like Lehman Brothers or a firm like AIG could never collapse. In theory, at least. Again, we're fighting that war, and I, I think I think the actually the real lesson from two thousand eight is that risk is is building in places that you're not looking. Like that's the lesson. Like the lesson that we learned was risk is building on on Goldman Sachs and Lehman Brothers and Morgan Stanley's balance sheet. But the real le- lesson was you don't know where risk is. You don't have a good tool to measure what risk is. That's the real lesson of 2008 is risk is what you don't see. Risk is what no one's talking about. That was also the lesson of 2020 was the biggest, like if you go back to January, 2020 and, and people said, what's the biggest risk to the economy? People would say the election, rising interest rates. No one said a virus. Like it was like the biggest risk is what no one was talking about. So I think we have not learned that lesson from 2008. And I don't think we've learned that lesson because we put in so many specific mechanisms to fight the last war. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like I think, you know, if we're talking Dodd-Frank or something like that, a lot of those things made a lot of sense to make sure that like the exact replay of 2008 couldn't happen again. But I mean, I think history shows that it's not the exact replays that happen again. It's like every crisis, every war is a little bit different. But then once the war is over, we try to fix the exact cause of that last war, thinking it's going to be the end of all future wars or future financial crises or whatnot. So we haven't necessarily learned that risk. I do think there is a sense that particularly for older millennials who kind of like myself, probably, probably you, who kind of started their careers around 2008. It's a really important generation because we started our careers around 2008. So we started in the face of collapse. And all we knew from investing was the stock market collapsed, the economy was weak. And then we kind of had this tepid recovery and then COVID-19 hit and everything collapsed again. And I think that's really important because when you have a generation for whom all they have really known is collapse and then slow recovery and then collapse again. I think that's a generation who just kind of like fosters this belief that this is how the world works. Every 10 years, the world I know falls to pieces and the economy collapses. And that's how everything works, which is, I think the only other analogy to that is a generation that went through, they lived through the great depression. And then as soon as that was over, they got thrust into world war II. That was also a generation that went through the rest of their lives thinking every 10 years, the world falls to pieces. And there's a lot of studies that show those people were pretty conservative for the rest of their life financially. They didn't go into a lot of debt when they ran businesses. They were very conservative in terms of how they ran it because of their sense of risk was anchored to those twin collapses. And, and I think that's that's true in a way for our generation, that the whole generation will probably live the rest of their life thinking that every 10 years, things fall to pieces. 
to, to talk about Kobe for a second, let's say we do another podcast. We're doing this podcast 10 years from now. It's 2031. Um, are there ways in which COVID has not merely accelerated what was going to happen anyways, but you think fundamentally altered you know, something significant? What, what comes to mind there for you? I think so much, there's so much just rushed innovation right now, right? Like not, not rushed in a bad way, but just frantic innovation right now in terms of making vaccines and therapeutics. And what we're going to learn from that, I think no one knows, but it's probably going to be astounding. There's such a long history that whenever people are in a frantic innovation phase, what comes out of it is completely unforeseeable and huge. Like the biggest the biggest innovation period in history took place during World War II and the first few years of the Cold War. That was when people were like, screw budgets, screw planning. If we don't figure this out right now, we're all going to die. So we need to like the amount of innovation that took place during that period was astounding. Like I always make the point that World War II started on horseback and ended with nuclear fission. What happened in those four years was just off the charts because people were frantically trying to figure out and things that came from it had all these ramifications that we would have never realized. Radar, GPS, microwave ovens, jets, rockets. We made those to, to fight a war, to win the war. But they ended up having all these other benefits on peaceful society that we never really thought of. When we made nuclear energy, it was we started the Manhattan Project with the idea of we need a bomb to stop the Germans and the Japanese. And then it turned into a way that, hey, actually we can light up our houses in a really efficient way doing this. Same thing with jet airplanes and whatnot. We made that because the Germans had faster airplanes than we did. Like, let's, we, like, we need jet airplanes to compete. And next thing we know, like, hey, we can fly to Australia for 400 bucks now. Like, there's all these benefits that you would have never imagined in the early days. And I think we're in the early days of fighting COVID-19. I'm not, I'm not you know, that knowledgeable in the, the biomed space, but whenever there's that much frantic innovation, yeah. whether it's around mRNA or therapeutics or just in how doctors and how, how public health systems treat patients during a pandemic, I think there's so much that we're going to learn that's going to affect other parts of the world in ways that we can't foresee. So I have no idea if you and I come back in 10 years talking about this, what it's going to be, but I would bet my life that there's going to be massive innovations that took place specifically because of COVID-19 that no one saw coming. Maybe in the same way that the financial crisis was the inspiration or catalyst, it seems, for for Bitcoin. Or these, yeah, you know, absolutely. Have, uh, this will be for for biotech and, and, and other innovations there. And I like yeah. that. Sort of a somewhat adjacent question. Yeah, we were talking about the Manhattan Project. There's this idea that government had so much more state capacity then. And it's not just because of our, uh, you know, uh, our president, uh, that, you know, that, that may be as it may, but it, but even, you know, in past, pre- there seems to be a major loss of state capacity. Uh, so do you have a, a framework for, for understanding h- how that happened? That's, that, that's a great question. Like sometimes this sounds kind of cynical and pessimistic, but could the Manhattan project today, could the Apollo missions happen today? I just don't know if they could. I, I don't know. I, I, but but here's here's kind of the counter to that. I think the reason you could get you could get away with the Manhattan Project and the Apollo mission is because we genuinely feared for our safety. And the Manhattan Project was if if we lose World War II, there's no more civilized world. And if we lose the Cold War, similar. Like the the rush, the the incentive to do those things was so far beyond profits or science. It was survival. I think if we were to face another situation today in the United States where survival is at hand. And, and COVID-19 is that, but not to the degree that fighting the Nazis was, or that, that you know, to the degree that the, the nuclear arms race was. Uh, I think once you have that kind of common panic, where 
in the United States, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter where you live in the United States, we were all fighting the Nazis in the Germany, a common enemy that we had to get with that, that we had to beat. I think if we were to face a similar situation like that today, and COVID is probably the most, the closest we've come to it, that's when I think you can get government that, that can come in or just big organizations that can come in and solve problems very quickly. Like, did we see that with Operation Warp Speed? Like, I don't know, maybe not, not really. Like, I don't think Operation Warp Speed will be put in the same class as the Manhattan Project or the Apollo missions, but could you have done Operations Warp Speed three years ago? No, like you need a giant panic or the stimulus packages, packages that we've done in the last 12 months, $3 trillion. Like you can only do that when it is clear that there's a major, major threat at your door. But I mean, to get back to your point, I, I think there is a kind of a, a little bit of pessimism that I don't, I don't know if we have the capacity uh, or the, the will to do those kind of projects today that we did back then, which, which is kind of unfortunate. Yeah. Maybe gearing towards closing here, I want to be mindful of your time. What's, what's your next book? Uh, or what's, uh, if, if you don't have the next book planned, what, is, uh, what are the topics that you're most excited to, to write about or, or, or research in 2021? No, it's, it's planned and it's sold to a publisher. I haven't started writing it yet, but I mentioned earlier the story about Jeff Bezos where he, when building Amazon, he bet on things that never changed, uh, fast shipping, cheap prices. The book is basically about things that never change, the really important things in history and economics and investing that never change. And basically my idea is we focus too much on change. Yeah. And since we focus so much on it, we're really bad at forecasting because it's hard to predict change. And rather than focusing all of our energy on change, we can become better forecasters, have a better idea of the future by focusing on things that never change. That's the brief synopsis of the book. I love it. Give me like 30 seconds on, on, on any other example that comes to mind. I get the Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, shipping, you know, fast shipping and um, lower prices won't change. What, what else won't change that you could see yourself covering? One other that I, that, I, that I like, I don't know if I'll use this in the book, but I've, I've always liked it, is that when uh, John Bogle created Vanguard in the 1970s, like, they, they, like he, he's very clear about why he started. Like the math behind indexing and low fees was pretty clear. But I just like that every other fund manager in the world was saying, what's the next industry? What's the stock market going to do next? They were betting on change. Jack Bogle betted on, betted on things that would never change, which was the low cost leader wins. So he could put all of his energy and effort into that, knowing it's never going to go out of style. He's not betting on a, on a tech trend or an economic trend. He's like, what he was doing in the 1970s was going to be as relevant 50 years from now as it was 50 years before. So he could go all in on that one thing. Awesome. That's a perfect place to, cl- to close. Uh, the, the book is a psychology of money. Um, I guess it's been Morgan Housel. I can't wait to have you back uh, for, for the next book. Uh, th- thanks so much, Morgan, for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.